You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Well, hello, everyone. And if you didn't get to enjoy the beautiful dulcet tones of Keenan saying, you're watching Global Trade This Week, I will back up that claim by letting you know that you are, in fact, watching Global Trade This Week. I am Pete Mento, and uh, with me... Nearly as always, except when I don't show up and Keenan has to get in there for me, is the, um, gosh, I don't even know how to put it. The, the MVP, the varsity, the um, Keep going. first ballot Hall of Famer of this yeah. show, Doug Draper. Doug, how, how you doing, pal? I am doing great. I'm doing great. Short, short, fun week this, this week. It's, uh, it's Thanksgiving, um, man. Thanksgiving. Yeah, but um, in this industry, it seems like, it doesn't work out that way for us. Like I, you know, I'm speaking at an event today, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday is, you know, for those of us that do cargo security, we're going to be calling everybody, making sure everything's locked up, make sure that you've got extra security going around because these long weekends are just a great opportunity for theft. So I don't know, man, I haven't really gotten to enjoy a long holiday weekend in a while though. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the norm in our industry, right? At some point, somebody we touch is is working on a Friday after Thanksgiving or up until mm-hmm. 9 p.m. on the day before or the weekend or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think in our industry, it's just par for the course. You, you, you take them as you can get them as far as the holidays. Dig this, Doug. I work for a company that was founded in Canada, and many of my counterparts are in Canada. And people were asking me if I could make meetings on Thursday. And, um, you know, there's that moment where you're like, you know, like, oh, yeah, they had their Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago. I didn't care about theirs and I would have probably sent them something too. And they probably don't care about mine. So that is perfectly fair. So I just yeah. reminded them and, and then it, it was all good. But uh, Doug, yeah. I will definitely be telling uh, my assembled loved ones that I'm thankful for you on Thanksgiving and this show. Keenan, uh, definitely thankful for Cap Logistics um, and certainly uh, thankful for the opportunity to sling it yet again. On another episode. Yeah. With that being said, Doug, why don't you light this candle? I will light it. And it is um, a good topic for global trade, right? The world does not revolve around the United States of America, as some of us may think, or not some of us, but uh, some of some of those listening. But um, I'm kind of getting mixed messages in the air freight uh, racket nowadays, Pete. Every, I wouldn't say every day, but there's a lot of times where one article talks about how these companies are expanding um, the, the uh, steamship lines or buying assets and opening up their own air freight divisions. And then like literally the next day, potentially even the same um, uh, industry blast, there's a whole nother article about other companies that are contracting on their air freight. And I'm not sure which, which one to believe, right? Some are pulling back, some are moving forward. Uh, asset providers and freight forwarders and the users of those services and the ones that resell. Um, uh, and and it, it's just, it's striking to me because um, like MSC Air Cargo has moved up their start date um, for their, uh, uh, for their services. They're rolling out their air freight service. Amazon Air expects to expand into the Boston Man- Manchester Airport area, um, not Logan, but the uh, an airport just north right of there. down the road from you, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Expansion, 
MSC Carrier expansion, Pittsburgh Airport, $44 million on an air cargo facility. Toronto, you'll have to ask your uh, Canadian buddies up there. They're flipping some office space into cargo space. Korean Air, BA, British Airways, Aeromex, they're all resuming schedules that they took down over, uh, over COVID. And then this one's kind of funny. Uh, Boeing uh, predicts that there will be 60% more freighters needed in 2041. Now, where the 2041 came from, I'm not really sure, but that is a long time out to make yeah. some type of judgment and call like that. And, you know, they make airplanes, so I'm sure it's uh, beneficial for them to make a statement. Um, but then there, uh, you know, there was an article talked about financial results of air freight are uh, crumbling and they don't ex expect those to get back in line until 2025. FedEx is dumping about 40 flights. Um, people are concerned that air freight uh, continues to deflate on the global uh, economy. So it's weird. I, I don't know how to figure it out, Pete, because some are growing, some are contracting, and one of them is going to get it wrong. I'm just not sure, um, you know, which one that would be. So my forward lean is, uh, you know, who, who do we believe? Or is it simply a case of spinning the data to make uh, – make one side's narrative, uh, uh, you know, have the data fit the narrative. And my take, and I said this a while back on a couple of shows ago, I think there is going to be overcapacity in 2023. Uh, and I think we're going to have a lot of articles about uh, these companies uh, hedging their bets, pulling back, uh, assets are going to be grounded, things of that nature. You can always park an airplane to take uh, things out of market. But anyway, I don't have a, a strong take. Uh, one way or another, but if I had the lean P, I think there's going to be overcapacity, which we spoke about in the past, specifically in 2023. So I don't know. What do you think? What's your take on that? I don't have a good answer, Doug. So uh, you know, when I, when I got your topics, I I was on the train on the way down here, and I was on the phone with a, you know, kind of a, an old salt in the industry, and I, I asked him his opinion, and he also said, I, I don't know. It was weird because I've I've been pretty emphatic that I think that air freight is it's a pretty good bet for the next few years, mostly because of the uh, e-commerce the e associated with it. Just a, a lot of the things that people want right now are going to, are they're not going to move ocean freight. They're going to end up moving the air freight because of either the, the delicate nature of it and the expediency required and the security concerns. So that was kind of where my head was going. But this friend of mine um, said, think about two other things while you're at it. There's a lot of economic indicators right now that are pointing towards automotive manufacturing ramping back up again. So the, the availability of new automotive, and that has a lot to do with the um, availability of certain technologies that were just hard to find in the supply chain. So I think that there's going to be a lot of, of air freight in use and things like heavy industry, certainly automotive, uh, the aerospace industry itself, where there should be a ramping up of that. And then as, as far as, Airports go, you always want to build an infrastructure in a falter, faulting economy, right? So that's when usually when things are cheaper, but with all of the um, inflation that we're seeing right now, probably not the case and money's not cheap. So a, a lot of times you would say to people, of course, Pearson is going to, you know, increase Toronto airport. Of course, you know, we're going to expand the runway in Logan now that things are, are, are quieter. Of course, we're going to have a, a cargo output in Manchester because people are going to want to make an investment. It's not necessarily um, 
a great time to make investments. And you can't swing a cat around the internet without finding dueling attitudes about how long the recession will last, how long inflation is going to last, and how long these interest rates are going to be up. So I, I tend to be pretty emphatic with my opinions, but this is one where my gut is telling me air freight is still a safe bet. And maybe that's why you're seeing a lot of these companies, but they don't make investments like this on gut. They make investments on this based on statistics. I just don't know where they're finding that data. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a great point. We shall see infrastructure. I'm, I'm good with that, right? Let's build it out. So when it pops again, you can accommodate and have the throughput and the connectors we've spoken about. So yeah, Mm -hmm. but money ain't cheap as we know. So anyway, what, yeah, we're going to flip it. What do you got for uh, topic one? You you got some doozies. There's a couple of think tanks out there that are making a suggestion on how to deal with how to deal with China. Um, allegedly, got to say that, Doug, allegedly, Chinese manufacturers steal ideas from other parts of the world, mass produce them, sometimes without even changing anything, and then put them back in the market under Chinese names. And many of the times, this is done with not only the direct knowledge of the Chinese government, it's done with a subsidy from the Chinese government. Like they, they give them money so they can be successful with it. So not only are they stealing everybody's ideas, allegedly, they're also going out there and they're getting financial support to ramp up production. And, you know, when you've got like, what is it, 1.4 billion people, many of whom are young and need jobs, um, and you're trying to build yourself into a self-sustaining economic machine, you can understand why people might do that. But it's contrary to how we're supposed to be running the global economy. Um, in, a, in a shocking, shocking play of irony, you don't ever want to steal an idea from a Chinese company because the Chinese government will go after you in conjunction with that company to make sure that you don't get away with it. But they've for decades been getting away with doing it in the other direction, allegedly. Now, the, the idea, I got to keep saying that, Doug, got to keep saying mm-hmm. I want to keep my Chinese visa, man, when I go over there, I don't want to screw anything up. So what this think tank is saying is we should you know, reintroduce this concept of what's called Section 337. So Section 321 was the um, the absolute curb stomping to tariffs that we had under President Trump that created the Trump and Biden tariffs that have been around so long with Colin Bill. What 337 does is much more um, final and certainly terrifying to a Chinese manufacturer. What it says is if the U.S. government has proof, you know, beyond reason to believe, but has proof, that a foreign co- company, and it was really written particularly to the Chinese, has stolen actual property, has you know gone after marketing rights, is doing counterfeits. They'll ban the import of that product from China, and not just not just that particular company, all products from China, banning that particular type of item from coming into this country from China. So you can't weasel around and say, okay, well, company ABC is not making it anymore. Company LMNO is going to make it right now and find some way to get under the 337. This is a, a this is like the the neutron bomb of sections. This is pretty ugly. And it it's like everything else that the USTR has, they'll make the rules on whether or not something qualifies and they'll set it up so the president wins. I don't believe that President Biden would go that far with China. He's trying very hard to build a bridge. Um, but I think that a President Santis, DeSantis definitely would. And I think we're all pretty confident saying that a President Trump would probably like day one 
but you start writing orders. So um, there's this facet. It's fascinating to think that we're at that point now where the Chinese we're talking about banning entire blocks of production of particular products because of our fear. And where would it be, Doug? Aerospace, biomedical, pharma, certainly automotive, consumer electronics. Yeah, it, it's interesting. The, the the one thing that gives me a little bit of pause on that thing is that you were showing, you know, uh, size of a bread basket, right? So, what if the uh, domestic and the U.S. manufacturers need that one piece, right? Hey, I'm doing my part here. I'm making stuff. I brought jobs back. Um, we we got a great team here, but I need two or three pieces from uh, from China. I can't find them anywhere else, and I need that to. Uh, to keep my jobs, keep my company open. So I could see that being problematic. Um, maybe a full, uh, you know, maybe commodities you know, the solar industry and things like that. But I think there's parts and pieces of a greater manufacturing process in the U.S. where that could create potential problems and um, either exceptions or workarounds uh, that would even come from the U.S. to say, well, this rule applies except for this or except for that. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll see if it, uh, if it, uh, it comes out. If I can, yeah, but what you just said, um, the way yeah. that they would probably address or try to address it would be, first of all, like the, the CHIPS Act, right? They'd say that um, we don't have A, B, and C. So as a government, we're going to find ways to support production of that in this country or in a country where we have an alliance. And if you use the money to export it to any other country, we're going to come down on you. And then the second half of that is where I'm, what I'm very fearful of, Doug, which is political um, interference with it, where, you know, you and I have got a successful company, pretty happy with the way things are going. And then BAMO, just, just as you said, there's a product we need in order to remain successful. We can't get it anymore. And um, the government's saying, well, too bad. And then we use our political influence through senators and congressmen to do something where it benefits us. Ultimately, that's that's not going to bring production back to an allied country. It's not going to stop uh, a nation that we're, we're alleging is stealing technology from continuing to steal it. All it's going to do is allow for the government to get engaged and stick their nose in it and probably not fix it for the future, but just fix it for you and I, which is, you know, a big problem in the grand scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Rules are important to follow until they're no longer convenient, right? I hate it when you say that, Doug. My life is relevant. (laughs) It might be relevant, but you know, rules are there so that Pete Mento stays employed. We should always remember that. Okay, fair enough. So that brings us to halftime, my friend. Um, Brought to all of you by Cap Logistics. Learn more is at caplogistics.com. Halftime is the moment on the show where between our two topics, Doug and I speak about things that are on our mind, topics that interest us, and basically Doug um, quietly and, and in, with a terrified look on his face wonders exactly just how far afield I'm going to go. Um, and this week, oh, it's a doozy, Doug. So yeah. why don't you go ahead and lead us off, and I will, uh, I'll close it out. All right. Well, um, this one's pretty mundane, so we'll ramp up for years, but uh, our beloved president uh, just turned 80. Yesterday, uh, November 20th, he turned 80 years old, oldest president in U.S. history. Um, if he goes for re-election and is re-elected, he will be 86 years old at the end of her tenure. Um, so I started looking into that a little bit or at the end of his second term. And um, 
the uh, octogenarians, octogenarians, which are uh, people in their 80s. Um, the workforce that comprises that, um, that decade has grown substantially um, since the 1940s, right? So back um, in, uh, uh, in um, 1980, I'm sorry, there's two things. 1942, well, let me start with this one, Pete. So in 1980, 2.5% of uh, people over the age of 80 were in the workforce. This year, in two, well, not this year, in 2019, it was 6.6%. So it's basically tripled the amount of people that are working in their 80s. Um, that probably dipped a little bit uh, during COVID because then the last number I gave to you was 2019. Um, and the life expectancy, th this one is shocking to me because to me, this, this differential would be more of um, several generations rather than, than, than one or two. But life expectancy in 1942, 66 years old, 2019, 79 years old. Everybody knows, and there was some, some discussion about that dipping during COVID and, and the, and the um, life expectancy was decreasing. But um, here's the deal, is age and octogenarians is it an automatic disqualifier for leadership positions? Because what we've seen recently, and one just happened yesterday where um, uh, the old uh, CEO of Disney, the new one got booted, the old one, um, Iger, came back in to kind of run the show. He's committed to two more years uh, to run the show. And then uh, Howard Schultz from Starbucks came back in. So it's interesting. So my whole point in this one, Pete, is, is I think as a life expectancy continues to um, elongate, no pun intended, that um, that generation and the octogenarians uh, will continue. And I think that the uh, percentage of people in the workforce will continue to grow. And we'll see uh, more 80-year-olds out there um, hounding it. I don't know if they'll be driving trucks and chucking packages, but, uh, but they'll be out there. Um, I, I've a, a, I got a lot to say about this one. So the first thing I've got to say, Doug, is I think it's a, I think it's, it's a, it's a criminal. It's an indictment on our society that we live in a world where people that old are forced to have to work. So that's that's like my my first real problem with it. Mm -hmm. I don't think you've managed to live that long. You should have to worry about your economic um, stability and. Uh, you can call me as soft as you want, man. But uh, I've have a lot I've a lot of memories of my grandfather, who was a relatively successful man, ways that maybe he shouldn't have been. Um, but at the end of his life, you know, he outlived his retirement, and it was hard. So that that scares me. And then second of all, you know, in a lot of other countries, older people live with their families as they get older. Mm -hmm. I want you to even consider for a moment you living with and being taken care of by one of your children. I'm pretty sure that my, my, both of my daughters hook me up, but my boys would be like, you can go in the garage and just die. Right? <laughs> um, but the, the, you know, the other half of it is, is really a question of, of competency. And I don't think that being old should ever disqualify someone from having a job. I regularly have conversations with people in this industry who are deep into their eighties that have all of their faculties that, um, that I rely on for insights, guidance, and wisdom. Now, do I think that being president when you're 86 is a pretty cool situation to be in? Maybe it is for him, but um, I don't want to. I, the height of stress for me when I'm that age should be what color liquor am I drinking today? 
and um, what direction am I going to walk toward the sun? Because uh, it just that just seems like way too much stress. Yeah, yeah. It's you know my dad is eighty four years old and he still works, and uh, wow. it's it's kind of well it's kind of a Joe job and everything. But he well he fell down. He had he had an accident. Had to go in the hospital, and he was wanting to get out in order to go back to work. And I'm like, I don't. That's crazy. It's crazy. And he doesn't need to work. He wants to work. So I think that there, there's quite a bit in that generation that may fit in that category. Well, think about all the farmers, you know, that never, I mean, they work till the day they died. Ranchers, fishermen's another one. Like, I know a lot of guys that were on the boat when they died because they were just like, first of all, I don't want to die with my wife. She'll find something. And the second reason was it was just it's their life, man. You know, I don't know how useful yeah. they were on the boat, but they were happy there. So let them go with yeah. their happy, man. Yeah. yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough topic because I, I don't believe that someone ever outlives their usefulness. And I don't want to believe that we can't find a place for wisdom and leadership. I think all of us could use a little coaching. So, yeah. Well, going from a tough topic to uh, a very relevant topic topic for all Americans on Thursday is, yeah. is yours, Pete. So I'll roll the red carpet out. You just let it rip. Yeah, bud. Well, speaking of old people at dinner, um, old people in your life, I think, one of my favorite things about mass holidays, like Christmas dinners, Easter lunches, Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. is getting a bunch of people together who clearly are going to argue. So definitely the case in my family, whether it's back in Texas where we have the teetotaling Southern Baptists that wouldn't, I mean, this, the smell of liquor on my breath will get me banished to the garage. Or if it's in my own family where the entire spectrum of political thought exists at any given time. Um, there's going to be some arguments. So here's Crazy Uncle Pete's simple guide to dealing with holiday meals. Number one, get drunk, stay drunk. Unless you can't do that, unless you've got an issue, right? But I think you need to just go into this, maybe, you know, letting everyone know <laughs> you're, 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 you're not to be messed with because you're not going to make any sense anyway. Like, why would you want to have what should be a rational conversation with someone who's starting at the starting line is probably going to be irrational. Number two, you need to set the tone early, Doug. So as soon as I sit down to dinner, I make sure that any conversations that we don't want to have need to happen right away. And I'm going to make them unbearably ugly. I'm going to say things I probably don't even agree with just to set the tone and make everyone else so embarrassed and so outraged that we just finish the meal in silence. Number three, I'd like to remind all of you that being in a family is a vocation and we're supposed to love these people, but it's okay. It's okay to not go to family dinners if you just know it's going to be awful. Bruce Lee said it best. Muhammad Ali had a piece of it. The best way not to get punched in the face is not to be there in the first place. So if you know that you and your 80-something-year-old grandpa are going to have a real problem with whatever new political issues come up, you know, maybe hit Applebee's for Thanksgiving this year. Or go to a friend's house. You won't have to cook, and odds are there won't be any blood flying, and you have to go find grandpa's dentures after your right hook. So, Doug, those are my simple rules for dealing with them. Set the tone early, get drunk, stay drunk, and remember, you don't have to be there if you don't want to. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's good advice or just advice to, to, to pass on, right? So my, my, my only comment to that is more in the moment. If you get asked a, a, an odd question, something you don't want to, you know, just the mashed potato dance, just put a bunch of food in your mouth and then yeah. 
knock no. something over under the table and then act completely distracted and just say, you can't talk, you know, you, your, your mouth's full of food and no. then, uh, and then distract. So, uh, look, look over here, a rope, a dope, and then, no, uh, totally. and just get the hell out of there. You wave your keys to someone. Doug, I, I, I don't think we use this enough, right? When someone asks you a question that is meant to truly just be evocative, give them the worst answer you possibly can. Like, why does it all matter? We're all going to die from a giant asteroid anyway. Or <laughs> something to the effect of, am I even really here? We just live in a, in a giant simulation anyway. What's the whole point of it? Or turn the conversation around, particularly with siblings, and bring up terribly embarrassing things that are happening in their life that maybe no one else knows about. I find that's very effective as well. Yeah, deflect. Lots of opportunities. Yeah. So good. Good deal. That's a halftime. Brought to you uh, as this whole show is by Cap Logistics. To learn more, visit caplogistics.com. Thank them uh, thank very much for helping us to actually for making this show happen. And uh, thank Keenan as well for his uh, increasingly better and better, you know, week over week, more and more competent job. At uh, He produced the hell out of that last show, Doug. All the videos yeah. and everything. That was incredibly good. It was and with good. that, Doug, why don't you uh, give us uh, number two? All right. So this one, uh, the topic has reared its ugly head again, um, post um, midterms, um, talks about a rail strike. And the, the bottom line of this one, Pete, <clears throat> will there be a rail strike in December? And the answer to that is no, there will not. So a quick recap, there's 12 unions that support the rail industry. It's about 115,000 people. Um, each one of those 12 unions has to vote and approve. So it's not just a one vote and you're done. And uh, I think the media spins that a little bit that they think that, uh, you know, they, they dumb it down for people like myself. Uh, made a lot of attention. A couple of them said it was okay. A couple of unions, it all went away. The midterms came and went, and now it's on the forefront again. So here, here's the deal. You got the Railway Act from like 1926, I believe. Um, if there is a rail strike, it's going to cripple commerce and create chaos in the supply chain. People don't realize that energy and commodity-based, uh, um, you know, industries, parcel, LTL, full truckload, intermodal, all these boxes moving around. You can see them on the rail, um, on the rail lines as they go. There's so much that moves on the rail that it would be be crippling. And the Railway Act. This was written in 1926. And I want you to think that I just said it in 1920 or 2022 because it still applies. It says to avoid work stoppages that threaten to substantially interrupt interstate commerce to a degree such as to deprive any section of the country essential transportation services, commodities. Mm -hmm. So uh, basically you could write that uh, in 2022. So here's the deal. Congress, because of that act, can avoid a strike by extending the quote unquote cooling off period. I would refer to that as kicking the can approach, just kick it down there and let's define what exactly is the cooling off period and how long does it last? Uh, Congress can set that up and define those parameters. There's no, there's no barriers around it. Or they can simply impose a specific contract on the union workforce. So they can either mandate or they can just elongate the discussion process. So Pete, there will be no strike. It will get some media, media attention. Congress will probably extend the cooling off period giving more time to figure out the nuances of the contracts for all 12 unions. And uh, by Christmas time, it'll all be behind us. There will not be any additional service interruptions and we'll go about our business in 2024. 
Doug Hope is not a streamer. <laughs> so I'm, right. I'm, I'm going to look at this from a Hope perspective. What is the point of threatening strikes if you don't do them? So we'll start with that, right? Um, second of all, politically, if Congress or any other organization inside the government were to dictate to a group, you're going to go back to work. You don't have a choice. We don't care about your collective bargaining agreement. We don't care what you're saying. It is political suicide, particularly for the left, because some of the largest donors they have are organized unions. Now, I agree with you, they'll kick the can down the road. And I agree with you, this will give them chances to try to work something out. But today, you know, the conductors are saying they're not signing their contract. They're just not doing it. They're not doing it. And they, they have demands um, that they want to see fit. And if there was ever a time that you had leverage, ever, ever, without a war going on, it's now. You cannot say that you could threaten to strike and then not do it if you got to the point where you just weren't happy with the way that the bargaining was going. So if you're going to be a tough guy and walk around and say that you're not afraid of people and you'll go out in the street and fight, you better be ready to cover yourself in bear grease and get after it with the other guy's big guy. Because that's where this is going, Doug. They will mm-hmm. kick it. I agree with you. They'll kick it down again. But if they don't, if they get pushed into something because they're worried about government interaction, they'll never have leverage ever again. If you don't believe me, look at air traffic controllers. So I think that anybody who's looking at the strategy here should be advising them to hold tough get what they asked for, and uh, Congress be damned. Well, we're both in agreement. The kick-the-can policy will continue to happen. They'll, they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll figure it out. But I, I would agree, and I had not thought of this comment, that if they mandate some sort of um, a contract, that, that would be uh, political suicide, and, and nobody wants that after the, the midterm. So interesting point on that one. I thought we were really going to brawl on this, Doug. I'm kind of bummed yeah. out. yeah. Well, you brought the heat in your text message, and so I was I was waiting. Troy was ready to ch- ready to pounce, so I'm glad I didn't have to get to that. Hey, listen, if you just want to admit I'm right, that's cool too. But you know, yeah. we can we can go to we can go to the last topic. Um, this one for me is 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 it's one of those bellwethers that gets me worried. All right, so um, I put a post up on LinkedIn today where I said there's and let, let me start by saying this, Doug. There's only one press I pay attention to in our industry. If it's not the JOC, G Captain, Freight Waves, you know, American Shipper, if it is not a you know byline from one of these reputable logistic sources, I don't pay much attention. I don't pay much ch- attention to the Wall Street Journal. I don't pay much attention to MSNBC or CNN or, or any of these or Fox because they're not industry analysts. They don't spend their life in this industry. And it wouldn't take more than a few minutes to start seeing how there are people saying that these rates are the new normal. This is what it's going to be like. You know, you're going to have East Coast rates that are where they are now, maybe a little bit lower East Coast rates that are going to be, you know, maybe rising up a little bit. No, no. The very strikes we're talking about is why all the cargo is going to the East Coast. And that's jacking up rates. Ocean carriers are doing everything that they possibly can to keep, you know, as few ships as possible so they're making as much profit as they can. But what really, really got my goat this week was people are missing a massive warning coming to us from China. Production is going through the floor. Production 
So production right now, it's down a little less than 2% over the last year, whatever. But it's the production of raw materials into semi-finished goods. It's the number of people who are not being told to come back after Lunar New Year for work. Start watching that stat. It's the number of people whose homes in China, they're not being brought forward. So they're, they're going to end up in foreclosure or some other type of financial distress. It's the number of people there that are preparing for their own economic comeuppance, regardless of the rest of the world. They are beginning to come to grips with their own economic problem. That production number is one of the first excellent, excellent indicators that the rest of the world is buying less. As the rest of the world buys less, capacity will have to continue to be constrained. Sooner or later, buddy, one of these ocean carriers is going to defect. When they do, those rates are going to collapse on themselves. Between then and now, if you're not looking at the supply side of the supply side, supply side of the supply chain, and paying attention to the fact that it's beginning to soften, you're missing one of the most important warnings we have in our economy. Yeah. Well, we've talked about um, that uh, uh, TV commercial or that ad campaign years ago with BASF. We don't make the things that you buy. We make the things that you buy better. Yeah. So the supply side side of the supply chain and the manufacturing, I think, is, uh, is a big hit. The other piece that uh, you made mention of is uh, who's coming back after Chinese New Year and the implications of what COVID has had. I think the um, COVID zero or zero COVID policy uh, is pushing people away in, in China. And just like here in, in the US, people are like, what, you know, what, what is there, um, uh, not what is there in life, but reassessing what's important and reprioritizing and coming back and potentially being locked up into a dorm room of your massive production plant at Foxcom or something of that nature is not interesting. And a lot of people aren't gonna come back. So I, I think there's a couple different things um, that, that are in play, but uh, the Chinese, uh, the CPI um, is definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, so the last thing I'll punctuate that with Doug, and you made a great point is, there's a lot of folks that just spent a year teetering on whether or not they were going to be stuck in their home for eight weeks. And they're asking themselves, why don't I go back to a smaller city where this is probably not going to be as much of a concern or go back to where I came from with the money I've made and start to establish a new life. And mm -hmm. that's not that. I mean, it's human nature. We shouldn't be surprised. So those are, those are great observations. Yeah. Well, Pete, with those comments, uh, we're going to wrap up this Thanksgiving edition of global trade this week. Uh, as we mentioned, it's brought to you by Cap Logistics. And um, I don't know if our audience knows, but Keenan is the is the voiceover on the intro of the show. And uh, before I met him and heard that voice, I was picturing this like six foot six, 300 pound, mm -hmm. uh, massive human. And um, Keenan's not quite at that level. But uh, for those that you didn't know, Keenan does the over. The overflow and he also produces a show and he also works for cap logistics which gives us the platform to, to talk about what we do Pete. so um, i want to thank you for always jumping on and your tips on uh, thanksgiving dinner we'll have to see how that uh, how that pans out for us go all ugly early guys go ugly early. <laughs> yeah, yeah i love it so thank you all for listening to global trade this week we appreciate it make some comments feedback you have suggestions on topics we welcome them all so until next week We'll sign off. Thanks, Pete. Take care. Happy Thanksgiving, buddy. Take care.